Hello, hello, hello. This is Ryan O'Connor with Evan Karen Key, uh, and you are listening to Trinity FM. We're coming not so live to you uh, from Trinity Halls. We haven't been live the last few weeks. I'm very sorry. I know you love using the chat box, but you can still interact with us in the chat box if you'd really like to. Yeah, if, if I'm actually listening by the time we broadcast this. We won't uh, be. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> fair enough. Um, this is We Lads Big Problems. Mm. And today, We Lads Big Philosophy might be a better topic. We have a really, really special episode today because for once, we're not talking about really horrible things that are happening in the world. We are interviewing a very special man. Um, Michael, would you like to introduce yourself? I'm Michael. I'm a very special man. <laughs> uh, Michael is our philosophy of religion professor. Um, he's professor is a- grandiose. Okay, we'll just say underpaid teaching assistant. Okay, <laughs> that works. Um, and today we're going to be asking him very important questions about God and religion. Um, you know, I'll give you a couple of examples. Like one one issue we're going to be tackling is uh, can an omnibenevolent God exist in a world containing evil? Another question we're going to tackle is, if Jesus existed today, who would his favourite Star Wars character be? Um, <laughs> uh, truly some of the most pressing issues in theology today. I think. Not just theology, in the entire world, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Um, so, well, the Western world. Yeah, you, 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 you've got us there now. Mm-hmm. Um, so, with that, will we uh, get started then? Right. We'll start off with a sort of easy one, Michael. Well, good. If Jesus did, like, if Jesus was alive today, if he was walking around this world, uh, some people say he's still alive. Some people say he is. Some people. Some do. Um, but so if he is alive, who do you think his favorite Star Wars character is, and why? One of the most difficult questions I've ever been asked. Um, I think he'd quite sympathize with Obi Wan Kenobi, Desert Hermit. Well, maybe he'd like the fact that General Grievous has, like, four arms. <laughs> he'd see it as a miracle. That's... Um, because, Ryan, while you were uh, researching for this particular question, I think you came across a lot of uh, Star Wars Christian... Uh, yeah, there, there's a surprising media? amount of, like, literature about how Star Wars promotes Christianity. And, like... I'm not going to lie. It was all shite. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there seems to be an essential disconnect there. I mean, the force is... I think Mark Campbell described it as religion's greatest hits. Um, it doesn't work precisely as a, a sort of entirely Christian sort of conception of the world because the force is this purely neutral thing. It, it's neither necessarily good nor evil, though I, I think I could dispute that if I had the time Wikipedia. And it's... It sort of the metaphor breaks down after a while. But you have all this sort of basic stuff like a chosen one and the sort of guiding light. So there are superficial similarities. So, but as I say, it's just religion in sort of generica. So that would make, um, if you would like, Luke is generally considered to be Jesus, being the chosen yeah. one and the one who goes through the, the, the journey and then <laughs> dies when he's 33. So who is Obi-Wan? Does that make Obi-Wan like Joseph? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, he dies very early on. Um. See, Christ doesn't really have a mentor in that way. Um, so it's it's more the hero's journey than the journey of Christ. Um, but it's just that the hero's journey and the journey of Christ have these sort of 
great similarities. I mean, it all comes from like Joseph Campbell, which I think comes from not Freud. What's his name? Well, who came after Freud? Uh, uh, Aristotle. <laughs> if only. No, it's um. Oh, Niles does it on Fraser. Young, young. So this sort of Jungian idea of these sort of heroic archetypes or something, and that's kind of where Star Wars comes from. Um, so uh, I think we can. So there's there's two possible answers to that. Then he might relate most to Obi Wan Kenobi, but that uh, in ter- in terms of the story, he's 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 definitely a look. I have another day to bring into this. I I think they might have miracles Han Solo pulls off. Throughout the first trilogy, they might like they can only be described as miracles. Uh, I I think. Han- What's well, what you say here now? Because those three films are stunning. <laughs> Han Solo is John the Baptist. Um, John the. <laughs> <laughs> oh god. Um, he eats locusts. Yeah. Um, right. Well, with that, I think we exhausted our our knowledge of Star Wars and religion. Actually, I'll say that there there are two characters in the Star Wars expanded universe. One of them is named after Aquinas, and explicitly, I think it appears in a comic, and explicitly dismisses the sort of categorizing that Aquinas does. And there's another who is based on another. It might be Augustine, but there are these these Keldor aliens. Uh, they don't appear very often, and um, I wish they would. It's so a thing or two to say to them. There are Aquinas and Augustine characters. Instant. Well, there's definitely an Aquinas, definitely an alien based on Aquinas. I think he was a Jedi um, in oh, the Old Republic. But like, he's explicitly critiquing some of the things Aquinas says, so it's it's a weird kind of homage. Um, that's mental. Um, is there, and what are the chances of a lecture on that before the end of the year? Slim. <laughs> I'll open the Wikipedia article here. Um, Wikipedia is where... Send it on to us after and we'll put it in the show notes for uh, all our interested um, Star Wars Christian theology fans. Um, uh, His name is Aquinos. Aquinos? (laughs) Oh, the character is called Aquinos. Oh, my apologies. He's not Kildor. He's Sunsei. Um, These are sort of weird brain aliens. Or as Wikipedia describes them, sentient amphibian humanoids, native to the planet Monar 2. Oh, um, I mean, this is far more than I expected to come out of this question. Yeah, honestly, <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, um, so does he have five ways? Um, oh, it doesn't go that far. Um, his name and some of his general philosophy is an homage to... Okay. See, it's sort of there is a, a, a an homage to Christianity within Star Wars, and it's called the Sunsei religion. And um, so Aquinas was just introduced as one of them. And okay, okay. he was a Jedi heretic who meddled with the Force with technology, which isn't necessarily something Aquinas did with Christ, but <laughs> he yeah. meddled with religion by bringing a new technology, such as. Not the printing press. Um, um, such as the middle. Bluetooth speaker. All <laughs> oh, right. Well. Um, so there's there's a, there's a whole thing there, a whole Star Wars Christian connection there, and an Aquinas one, which is stupid as hell. There it is. Um, I'd honestly, that's um, like I might, I'm considering doing the philosophy of religion essay on that. Um, you shouldn't. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, I found out that um, putting a lot of Star Wars references in my uh, philosophy of religion or philo- just philosophy essays don't actually get me extra marks. No, I'm afraid not. I, I was really hoping for it. You know, I, ha- I had lots way for a new pope something like that <laughs> yeah if you were the, oh i remember those yeah i mean look i really like them and they give me a big old grin but no i can't give marks for that <laughs> <laughs> um i feel though like if if um we pulled some sort of diplomatic coup and got you to be like head of the philosophy department you could always change the the marking system <laughs> it's sort of the leaders of organizations are never leaders they just Members with more influence, and I think that's true of, of any philosophy department. My supervisor, um, Professor O'Grady, was the head, and it's not that he wanted to not be head, it's just that when you're a head of a department, a lot of your time is spent with administrative duties, and okay. he'd rather just do the thinking and writing that a philosopher is supposed to do. Mm-hmm. All right, so if you're the head of philosophy department, you don't actually do much philosophy? Oh, you do plenty. It's just you have to do all this administrative stuff on top of it. Oh, great. Oh, right. Wow, what, what a bonus. <laughs> that just kills a person. Oh, God. Um, so, Ryan, um, I'm looking at your document here. Um, you've got another question. Uh, very similar to the last one, I'm assuming. Oh, yeah, yeah. This one, um, this, it links directly on from the last one, I think. You know, in a very, you know, just as it should in all philosophy, everything should lead on from the previous point. I have to ask, can an omnibenevolent God exist in a world containing evil? A lot of answers to that question. Um, we will be doing a lecture on it soon. Ooh. I haven't written out yet. Um, so this is like- there's sort of two general consensus. The first is that if God is omnibenevolent and there is evil, then there can't be a God. That Essentially, the presence of evil disproves omnibenevolence. So if God is there, he's either not all good or not all powerful. One of those two. And then he basically mm-hmm. he's not God. Then you have the more optimistic version that says, evil can exist, but it's not a positive thing. That, that's the sort of view of Aquinas's, which I'm always fascinated by. He doesn't think, he, he links goodness with being, right? So things that exist are good. Evil is literally the absence of God. It's the, the absence of existence. So when you do something evil, you aren't doing something. You're, you're essentially creating a void in creation, is the best way to describe it. So evil acts aren't things, they're, they're lacks of goodness. And so, literally, human, you know, the sort of the human capacity is to sort of do these, non, these nothings, and that's what evil is. It's literally just a turning away from God and a turning away from creation itself to nothingness. It's like making extra holes in the donut, essentially. Okay. Yeah. And that's how evil, can, for Aquinas, can exist alongside the sort of omnibenevolent God, because it's not, evil isn't a thing. It's just a lack of goodness. Now, um, that, that gets kind of weird when you start talking about things like torture. Is that, is that just a purely negative act? But um, and so that's the sort of general framework Aquinas works in. For Aquinas, then, that doesn't require... Like, God doesn't have to make sure that there's not a lack of goodness, essentially. So Yeah, I mean, part of the deal, it seems, that God gave human beings free will, so his will has to be at least permissive of human will going wrong. And, um, you know, I mean, we all saw The Last Jedi, that happens. <laughs> yeah. I actually have to be honest with you, Michael, and I know this might actually make you kick me out of the course. I haven't seen The Last Jedi. In fact, I hadn't, probably better. I hadn't even watched the Star Wars film until this Christmas. You were pushing it. You're really pushing it. I, I, um, 
Like, if you just said, I haven't seen The Last Jedi, I'd be like, fine, good man. But it's like, I know I don't, I don't hate The Last Jedi. Uh, but which Star Wars film did you watch? Oh, I, I watched the uh, the original trilogy because I thought... Oh, they're stunning. Stunning films, wonderful. Uh, they were they were so fun. Um, I love them. They're not necessarily the most philosophically relevant literature you'll ever find, <laughs> aside from this focus on the sort of the hero's journey. But yeah, I think they're good. I'm not going to make them required reading for the course or anything. But um, <laughs> Philosophical relevancy is what I look for in my, uh, my sci-fi films. <laughs> Oh, but uh, not a bad criteria. No, honestly, no. Um, but uh, I've actually, I've I've watched some of the Star Wars films. I, um, I hate to say it, but I remember like watching The Empire Strikes Back and thinking that I wasn't enjoying it as much as I was supposed to. But that was like ten years ago, so you know. Um, well, you were like two then, three. <laughs> I don't know. Actually, in the whim. Yeah. Um, I have to say, I, I actually think The Empire Strikes Back may have been my least favourite out of the trilogy, and I know that's a controversial thing to say. Um, Sometimes I wonder if that's because people are expected to enjoy it um, as being the best. You look at something like The Godfather, um, mm. top film that is listed on many top film lists, and then you watch it and you go, I'm supposed to enjoy this. And that expectation then kind of makes you look for more flaws. Or makes you hyper aware of the fact that you aren't living up to them. Okay. I don't know. Something like that, maybe. That's some good philosophy uh, there. <laughs> bring that back to evil and omnibenevolence. Um, no. Do the prequels represent then a lack of goodness as opposed <laughs> to an actual act of evil? Because I'm having a hard time like reconciling those facts in my head. Yeah, how can the prequels exist in the same world as an omnibenevolent god? <laughs> Lacks of goodness, okay? I mean, they're, 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 they're films, but they just make lots of wrong decisions. But I suppose the things that they are are inherently positive, because there is something made. Okay, But it's just that every so often you just get like a Jar Jar Binks-sized hole in the... Okay, <laughs> and I have to say, Revenge of the Sith is one of my favourites. I don't care, I saw it when I was 12 when it came out, and I love that film. So It's only two of the prequels, really. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, I've... One question that's once again entirely unrelated to that, but about omnipotence and evil, right? Yep. Um, which is like, so um, you've got like natural disasters that kill people for no reason, say, right? So, like, uh, people who've never done anything wrong in their lives, children, uh, people, right? These people all die in like yep. tsunamis and earthquakes and things like that. Um, is that. Like, how, how can that be a lack of goodness or a result of free will, essentially? And that, like, it needs to be an, you know, just a chance thing. There are two kinds of evil, okay? There's, there's moral evil, which is the evil of human beings, and then there are natural evils. Natural evils can be things like the fact that death exists, the fact that tsunamis exist. And sometimes, by Aquinas' reckoning, and I think by Leibniz's as well, these things are necessary for a greater good to come out of them. Um... So when it happens that, say, a child dies in maybe, you know, a tragic landslide or something, there's all sorts of answers you could make there, I think Aquinas would make, which is something like, this is not something God willed, but it's something God allowed to have happen, and it's the confluence of the free actions of the people who built their city there and the, and the, the fact that this landslide is going to happen at some stage. But, it, you know, it is still an evil. Uh, it's just a, it's a natural evil. It, it's a weird thing, because it's... Um, Evil seem necessary for Aquinas as well, in the sense that, you know, it's not a donut if it doesn't have a hole in the middle. Um, 
so there are necessary evils like the fact that things cease to be that they cease you know they, they start to die the fact that the seasons exist and that they you know they plants die and then they grow back again in the spring so there is a certain extent there's an allowance there for these bad things happening why an omnipotent god needs to do these things is a question that comes down to god's omnipotence and it's like well does god have a choice in making a planet where there aren't any tsunamis or tornadoes okay and aquinas's answer is going to be well no god can't in a sense make better the things he's made he can make better things but he can't make the earth better than it is um, which leads you to all sorts of interesting questions about the best of all possible worlds in Leibniz. You probably, I mean, Leibniz is famous for the saying, this is the best world possible. Why? Because it's here. God wouldn't choose anything less. And then Voltaire tells him, you, you know, I mean, look at all the, the, the crap that's happening in it, Leibniz. What's wrong with you? And I, I love that. I love that line of reasoning. Like, God will create the perfect world. You look around the world. You see it's, it's not perfect, and you say, dead. well, God created it, so this has to be perfection. <laughs> um, yeah. Leibniz's arguments along that line are best doesn't mean most comfortable, and it also doesn't mean best for human beings, um, because there could be a whole series. I think, actually, he literally says there could be creatures out in the universe whose goodness depends on the occasional bad thing happening on Earth. We can't, in a sense, I think it comes from the book of Job, this sort of idea that we, we can't see the totality of things like God can, and that some of the evils we suffer are necessary for much greater goodnesses somewhere else. In the same way that for spring to come, you have to go through winter, and okay. the flowers bloom again, but they have to die first. It's, is, it's, not, a, it's not an easy pill to swallow. It certainly isn't. Hmm. Uh, and you can understand why... That might not be a very comforting sentiment, but it is an interesting one uh, intellectually. So, what, um, like, on the other hand, you will be tempted to say that a neutral, uh, like, if there is some higher power, then it would be neutral or maybe evil as opposed to good. If you look around the world and what you define as good isn't always there, like the force, for example. And Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, I mean, there there is this this attraction to um, a god who who literally just makes the world and needs it. Uh, the sort of deism I think that came out, especially in the the 18th century, the 19th century, a god who abandons creation, and that's a way of explaining why it's running the way it is badly. Um, but that it needs a first cause, and that first cause is most likely to be God. So that that's sort of a compromise position that some people adopt. Okay, so God just gave up on us. Uh, yeah, it's not like God is disinterested. Yeah, said, nah. said, nah, I'm getting out of here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, yeah, I mean, like George Lucas. He just <laughs> no, George Lucas didn't do that. He he remakes his films all the time. You know, the special editions and them. It's like God wasn't George Lucas. It's like George R. R. Martin. Martin. But it's again, it's like George R. R. Martin. Except he didn't have a choice. Oh yeah, from the Throne of Games thing. Um, <laughs> from the All Throne Game. Yes. Yeah. I hear he's writing a new book or something. Isn't that great? <laughs> I can't wait for that book to come out. I'm so excited for it to come out at its release date. Ryan, go and hold your breath there. <laughs> Just... um, the chance of uh, Winds of Winter being released uh, like on time are probably about the same as the chance of uh, Michael getting free a whole component of uploading every lecture exactly on time. 
<laughs> right. That's only because of my feelings as a person. <laughs> I'm, I'm supposed. To, I was supposed to have a lecture out last night, um, but Panopto, the software the department uses, is kind of crappy, so it um, stopped recording halfway yeah. through. And I thought. Trust me, I'm actually delighted. Um, I have nothing to do. I like getting all my lectures done on the day they're uploaded. You know, it would be logical to just like evenly spread them out throughout the week, but I'm not logical. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Neither am I. <laughs> I like doing things the day they're uploaded. So I sat there at about nine o'clock last night and I was like, oh, Jesus, got a philosophy of religion lecture to do now, you know? Just, I like to sleep, but I just want to, you know, get it done today. And I go on to TCD Blackboard, I log in, I click on Philosophy of Religion, I look at lectures, and it hasn't been uploaded. And honestly, Michael, that made my day. So thank you. <laughs> I'm glad that laughs, that loss of goodness was so good for you. <laughs> it's only because I was playing Yakuza and got to the part where you have to run a cabaret mini game, and uh, <laughs> it's like suddenly it was two hours later, and I was like, what am I doing? It's like, I have work to do. It was just a lot of things going on here, and then I played Yakuza on top of it, which was a bad idea. Don't don't follow my example, okay? What's your favorite Yakuza? I've only been playing, <laughs> I've only been playing them in the last three weeks. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. My brother has Game Pass, and I thought, ah, I might as well try one. And um, now it's like 80 hours. No, 80. It was 120 in the first game that I played, which was zero. Um, 40 in the next, and I think I'm up to about 40 in the third one. <laughs> Like they're not they're not stunning and they're certainly not very philosophically relevant, but they're a way to unwind. Um, sometimes you need that. Again, Aquinas says this. It's sort of there's a purpose to leisure, and sometimes that purpose is to help with contemplation. So sometimes when I'm away, having my character kick the crap out of street thug and thinking things about omnipotence. Like I'm not, but I can say that I am. Yeah, that's why I'm going to justify the insane amount of hours I have in Overwatch. Like, <laughs> I was just thinking about philosophy the whole time. <laughs> oh, Overwatch. Do you Overwatch. have a favorite video game, Michael? Oh, good question. Um, I love Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic, and I love Halo 3. They're my two favorites. I, I can see that for you. That makes sense, yeah. Oh, Halo is so good. <laughs> just that, that perfect um, free combo, the grades and the melee. Shooting. Oh, it just feels great. Um, um, as regards to game with interesting philosophical content. Oh, the best. There aren't a lot. I mean, you, you have Bioshock with the sort of objectivist critique in it. But I don't know much about objectivism, so it doesn't really appeal to me. And you get bits and pieces in places like Knights of the Republic 2, where there's a bit of a discourse on determinism and how it relates to the Force and that. But mm. There's no Thomist game. There's no properly Thomist game that I've found, which I think is sort of terrifying um the only <laughs> philosophical game i've ever played um I was, <laughs> <laughs> I was i was about eight or nine and it was uh you know ratchet and clank oh yes yeah ratchet and clank a crack in time and um there, there was a lot going on in that game to be honest with you like there was a clock at the center of the universe which is very uh leaving its kind of thing isn't it if I'm, yeah kind of that's where he was like the whole watchmaker you know Sort of, and like, yeah. that's, that's William Paley, but anyway. Mm. Um, and uh, there was all sorts of stuff about like uh, time and uh, being able to like put time back and forwards and having to uh, save all the planets. Um, I think it might not have been as philosophical as I remember it. <laughs> um, it, it really touched me, you know. Um, uh, 
this might just be because I'm a stan, but um, I like I, I hear young people use this term. What the hell is a stan? Oh, it's uh, it's someone who's like obsessed with like usually it's usually referred to like if you're obsessed with a celebrity, um, oh, use okay. it in other contexts. But it came from um, do you ever that one Eminem song? Uh, is it called Stan? I'm more of a Malteser kind of guy. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, but it was from that song, and now like sorry, Ryan just looked at me to explain a young person term. <laughs> uh, Evan is ninety at heart. <laughs> something you need to know but um i think no this might be controversial but i think dark souls is actually underrated as a game with like a surprising amount of philosophical content um i love the games and like i just think there's a lot in there um i've heard that said um some of my friends are really avid dark souls players and one of them is, is probably the best philosopher i've ever met and he's quite a fan of them so and i remember when i came into trinity actually my first day um I met with a member of the department who was no longer um, working there, and in his office on the desk was this brand new unopened Dark Souls board game. <laughs> That's amazing. I love it. He's I long it. gone now, but um, wow. kind of gave me something to remember him about. Definitely. Right. Anyway, yeah. we'll speed up the discussion here. We'll not speed it up, we'll just move it on. Um, um, now we want to ask a bit about Jesus's political views. Um, oh, good. Do you think Jesus would be a communist? If not, what would his political ideology be? You see, we're moving away from metaphysics here, which is kind of my specialty. Specialty. <laughs> the thing I've been doing for the last few years. There's a difference. Right. The whole show is just us talking about things we don't know about. So, um, Oh, like my lectures. Yeah, <laughs> great. Perfect. We've got a lot in common. Yeah, and I get paid to do those. Um, I know that several political ideologies have been based on... The sort of the actions that Christ are recorded, is recorded to have taken. Um, there's this sort of the Catholic Church, I think, uses this sort of model called distributism, which I'm not very sure about, but I think it's, and you know, yeah, they think it is a, a reasonable alternative to capitalism and to um, oh. to communism. Oh wow! Which is, I think, it's just this literally just giving to those who have not. Um, but don't quote me on them. Um, I mean, some maintain that. Um, Trying to work out a, a political model from someone like Christ is not necessarily a good thing to do. It wasn't his aim on earth, and it doesn't necessarily give what is considered to be a, a perfectly formed political system. So trying to identify him in that scheme is kind of weird. But then you have others who will swear by the fact that he was definitely a capitalist or something like that, and you kind of wonder. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking it up here, uh, distributism, and on the world's the repository of all knowledge Wikipedia actually looks really interesting. So, like, it views those laissez-faire capitalism and state socialism as equally flawed and exploitative, favoring economic mechanisms such as uh, cooperatives, member-owned mutual organizations, small businesses, competition law, antitrust regulation. Um, Sounds like a scheme to give the church more power, if you ask me. Yeah, um, I didn't realize the, the church had such a coherent, like, Catholic social teaching had like such a coherent economic um, policy. As any, just like any organization that large and that old has to, if it if it if it is to you know be meaningful, hmm. um, at least partly in economic terms. I will say that um, there's obviously going to be disagreement in the church, especially yeah, the Catholic Church is what I'm talking about because this is what I kind of know. Um, but there will definitely be disagreement. It's not university held, and I don't think the Catholic Church 
actually endorses a particular political model above any others. Distributism is probably the one they come closest to, but that's more an economic model, I think. Yeah. Okay. But they don't they don't say you should vote this way, you shouldn't vote that way, um, or that you should have a, a monarchy or a republic. They just it's not their business in a sense. The moral issues like, are their business. Sounds to me like Jesus might have joined the Social Democrats. I know some Social Democrats, yeah, so he wouldn't yeah. have. No, <laughs> no, they're lovely people, but I I need them to stop talking to me. <laughs> um, you know, I have a friend in America who's who's a, a committed social democrat, and suddenly a load of my other friends became social democrats, and I just just for that sort of weird cult like thing, I, I kind of moved away from them. I was like, Ugh. I don't like when you're spreading like a fungus. <laughs> I um like I, I made a joke last day, and I'm gonna have to repeat it now because um, my friend Frank says it's the best joke he's ever heard and the most accurate one. Um, I said people who vote social democrats, and I'm sorry to anyone who's listening right now who votes social democrats. But like you can, you know, they vote social democrat if they have a god complex, but they feel guilty about how much better they feel than everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> and that leads us on to the next question. I think that says a lot. You listening, Podrick? <laughs> <laughs> I think it says a lot about Frank that that's the best joke he's ever heard. Fair, <laughs> <laughs> Frank. But um, that does actually lead us perfectly onto the next question, which comes in from a listener. Uh, and it says, Michael, I have a god complex. And really, there isn't enough space for two omnipotent beings in this universe. I know I exist, you know, a cogito ergo sum, that type of argument. Therefore, god can't exist. Is this a valid argument? You're going to be omnipotent if you're uncaused. And I think that person probably came from their parents and a night of passion. So you think, well, they're not really uncaused. Well, uh, how do you, like, you're told you come from your parents, but you've no memory of it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, a lot of the times we, uh, we have to believe, in a certain extent, on testimony. Um, that we didn't just spring out of nothingness. Yeah. Again, this, this has some sort of Christological parallels, because there are some who maintain this sort of low Christological approach, which says that um, Christ didn't know he was Christ. He didn't know he was the Son of God. He learned it over time. And then you have this sort of high Christological model, where Christ descends, knowing perfectly from, from infancy that he is to be, you know, the Son of God, that he is the Son of God. Um, so this issue of whether Christ knew during his life if he was, you know, to redeem the world or not is is quite a salient one. I think the sort of general answer that most Catholic, maybe some of the Protestant churches give, is that it's high descending, that, that Christ knew he was Christ. But certainly there is a, a growing trend in the last century or two of this sort of low ascending where the, the, the human Christ becomes divine over time. Okay, yeah. That's actually um, interesting. That's yeah. Um, so it brings me to like um, an argument that I really like in like mental philosophy as well. Um, this person or listener here is saying essentially um, that they know that they are God. Essentially, right? Like, to what extent is um, is all this based on like us just agreeing about how we feel? Do you know, like if someone just says, "Yeah, no, I am actually God." Uh, I'm, I'm I'm omnipotent, but I don't do things. You know, <laughs> I'm omnipotent. I'm just really lazy. Like, how, how... see, I think there's an interesting relationship there between omnipotency and powers. And generally, if you have omnipotent powers, you're going to do things because power is diffusive. Its goodness can't help but spread. Um, and if a person like that is asking questions on Instagram, they're not they're not spreading goodness, really. <laughs> <laughs> I I saw it my lab, so. <laughs> Um, no, so that's, um, 
That's some Zach question. Yeah, I um, I have, I'm looking at uh, all the question document here that Brian has, and I'm starting to regret um, uh, getting him to do all the questions because the next one I'm looking at here is just dinosaurs question mark. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us, Michael. Dinosaurs question mark. Yes, I believe um, they were large lizard things. <laughs> Sometimes with feathers, depending on the consensus of the day. And there, there was that really good film in 1993 that invented them, which was called Jurassic Park. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, yeah, that actually... Uh, I'm not sure why Ryan wrote Dinosaurs. Um, sure, he can explain his reasoning, but... Um, I was just thinking of uh, dinosaur-shaped chicken nuggets at the time. I was really hungry. Oh. <laughs> Get it together, um, Ryan. And talking about religion... Dinosaurs are a big thing for um, all Christian fundamentalists. Oh, yes, indeed. Um, but there are broader issues with evolution, the sort of idea that things progress to, to culminate in rational man. Um, I can say that most mainline churches, definitely the Catholic Church, presumably the Anglican Episcopalian churches, will, will embrace evolution in some model. It's... Um, it's a perfectly reasonable way of thinking about God's will unfolding over time, is what they'll say, and things developing, because the idea that, that God can magic things up, well, instantly the way they are, seems to follow from omnipotence, but there's also this idea that maybe there's a best result achieved by this slow growth over time. Um, again, it's sort of a question of we don't know which is the better approach, because we're not omnipotent, we're certainly not omniscient. But certainly the, the idea that um, dinosaurs didn't exist, that that's more of a... Um, as you say, it's more relations you'll see with more fundamentalist groups. Yeah. It speaks to the relationship between religion and science as being this, a lot of the time, really contentious, but probably shouldn't be half as contentious as it is. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. So, like, um, so in all of, uh, in the lectures we were doing, um, one of the things that I thought was really interesting was, like, the fact that some philosophers don't see uh, a direct, uh, you know, so a conflict between rationality and faith, essentially. Mm. And that, you know, um, uh, like, you've got, um, yeah, like, that you can have cooperation between the two, or you can work with both. Uh, and that, like, uh, people would consider science to be opposed, nearly by nature, to the idea of religion, but then again, a lot of um, a lot of scientific developments came out of the church, especially in astrology and or ast astronomy and stuff like that. Yeah, the Big Bang, mm -hmm. genetics theory, things like that. Yeah. So the church, I mean, and the church and its intellectuals are often fertile ground for scientific growth. But it's saying, well, the science is simply this this field of sort of empirical data gathering. It shouldn't really be opposed or, you know, allied to any particular view. But this sort of Simply just this tool we use to gauge certain physical things about the universe. Um, there's often this view called scientism, which is the sort of exaltation of the empirical method. And that's what I think a lot of religious commentators, in the same way that a lot of people, when they talk about religion, will talk about Christian fundamentalists. Some religious commentators, when they talk about science, will talk about scientism, which is this somewhat similar caricatured view where you sort of exalt the, the empirical sciences above all the others. That if something is real and empirically verifiable by a test tube and a beaker in the lab, it's more real than something that came out of an arts or humanities sort of lecture book. Um, what seems to me to be arts block 
surprise, <laughs> honestly. Um, but I'm actually interested to hear, Michael. What what are your own beliefs on uh, on 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 these things about faith, reason, the relationship between them? Like where where would you stand personally if you had to pick a side? Well, the thing is, I was asked this question by my undergrad class last year, was the year before. And I told them what I'm going to tell you now, which is, it's none of your business. Yeah, that's very fair. Yeah. My point is, I don't want to influence your essay writing, your thoughts. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. I don't like the idea that if I'm, say, established as some sort of atheist or some sort of of uh, faithful religious believer, that you'll then tailor your essays towards me. Yeah, Philosophy, yeah. at least the way I see it, is, is about giving you tools to discern truth and falsity. And if I'm, in a sense anything other than the sort of vaguely impartial lecturer that I'm giving you ways to achieve marks that maybe you don't deserve by, you know, it's why I don't yeah, get marks yeah, for Star Wars things um, so I'm an enigma wrapped in a mysterious cloak of secrets you know, it's just like, don't worry about me man, worry about yourself <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, that's fair enough Like, um, I suppose we're getting to another uh, questions from listeners, actually, first of all, uh, Don McCarthy wants to say uh, uh, thank you for giving him like three firsts last year. Ooh. <laughs> um, and no idea is. one of my favorite questions in all this is from Finn Mick eighty nine. Who is that? Finn Finn McGrath? Finn? Uh, it could be. You know, we're gonna say it's from Finn McCool because uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's cooler. Sorry, he asks, who was more horny? Saint Augustine or uh, Lando Casarillian? Calrissian. Calrissian. We know Augustine had a concubine. <laughs> don't necessarily know if Lando had one. Okay, yeah, that, that's some um, good logic. I like it. I'll point out here for anyone who's not familiar with the whole thing with Saint Augustine. Um, he wrote a lot about how for a whole lot of his life he was having a whole lot of sex and it was so difficult for him uh, to be holy and that he had to give all that up essentially um the he's he's, he's, he's probably one of the the more um what's the word uh out there philosophers of that kind of stuff you know Yeah, that really intimate way in which he describes his life and his failings um, appeals to a lot of people because it, it's a much more personal way of doing philosophy than the sort of dry stuff you get in Aquinas. And there's no way around. I mean, Aquinas' stuff is quite dry. Okay, so is Aristotle's. So if you read Plato, you read Augustine, you get this sort of vivid recollection of real people, or at least the people they want you to see. And in a sense, it can be harder to draw philosophical treaties out of that, but it, it makes it more readable. It certainly makes it more engaging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's always that line. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, no, definitely, because like it, it brings that kind of uh, personal angle to philosophy, which is kind of it's it's underrated in a way that like a lot of people see philosophy as something that has to be purely impersonal and rational and divorced from like how you feel yourself whereas i suppose some philosophers would say that like you can't um you can't do real philosophy without getting to know yourself and how and what you think and that yeah it kind of reflects this this analytic continental divide in philosophy which 
you know, you think of continental philosopher or all the, these Frenchmen in cafes thinking about how death is inevitable, and then you speak of the analytics and all these. They're basically just scientists in disguise doing logic in America. Um, that's the way I think of the, the sort of two groups. And you can kind of see where the two sort of fit into faith and rationality, which one might be more open to it. But that's only if you think the continental analytic distinction exists. A lot of people do, but it's philosophy, so a lot of people don't. Hmm. Yeah, no, it's um, it's an interesting divide, like because doing philosophy, um, like actually studying it, like you get a lot of uh, not only like the, your own notions of what you think change sometimes, but like your own ideas of what philosophy is change too. Certainly. Um, right. Um, that's the best answer I could possibly expected from that. <laughs> really. Why we got to like you know dissecting different types of philosophy from the question who was more horny, Saint Augustine, Orlando, Calrissian? Well, we haven't got an answer yet. Um, and I feel like there won't be an essay topic on this question. So, you know, if I want to keep my job, there won't be. <laughs> <laughs> um, I suppose another one to ask then is um you, well the exact question is do you reckon God hums along to WAP every now and then? But I want to ask like a more sort of specific question. And that if God, I know we've touched on this a little bit already, but if God is the efficient cause of all things in the universe, he is the efficient cause of songs like WAP, and more recently, what's uh, Lil Nas X's song called? Oh, uh, I actually don't remember. I can't remember the name. The churches have been going mad off the music video. I think it's called, it, it's the gay literature book. What you call it? Um, or movie. Hold on. Um, point is, it's a song anyway. I'll get the name. One second. Oh, come on. Oh, yeah, it's called Call Me By Your Name. And the music video, he uh, he has lap dances with the devil. Um, he's selling, you know, he's selling shoes with a drop of Satan blood in them. Oh, that guy. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's caused absolute, like, we actually, um... <laughs> oh, this is terrible. <laughs> Can I say, will I say the email yeah. sent? Okay, uh, last day we uh, we picked up a copy of uh, the Catholic Voice, which was um, a quite it's quite an interesting magazine, you know, it's claiming that for you know for decades in Hollywood, men have been oppressed and been told that uh, they even need to become more feminine or sit down, uh, which is a very uh, interesting take on Hollywood. <laughs> um, we emailed them complaining about this music video, uh, and <laughs> in the voice of like a, a, a you know a very. Uh, a very just, a disgruntled parishioner from uh, Paligo Backwards. Paligo Backwards. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, we're still awaiting the reply. We're very excited. It was a great email. Um, but if God is the efficient cause of all things, then he is the efficient cause of uh, of WAP and of Call Me By Your Name, all these things that, you know, the Catholic Church has often taken, you know, uh, uh, like sometimes they've taken a lovely, you know, uh, mm. an approach... A re- reconciliatory, 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 uh, sort of approach to it, but um, a lot of the time they oppose these sorts of music videos. And um, can God be the efficient cause of these things? I suppose. Yeah, again, it's it's sort of like the sort of issue with tsunamis and tornadoes. God is the permissive cause, and that God doesn't want them to happen, but in a sense, God allows them to happen. Okay. Um, which, you know, I mean, still seems like a little bit like God is implicated in them, a little bit. Yeah, that actually reminds me of um, oh, an experience I had, like, in my Leaving Cert Religion class, uh, which was the weirdest class, like, because, you know, 
uh, we were in leave insert, uh, in the leave insert, trying to like study as hard as we could to get like uh, half decent grades and everything, you know, whatever, right? And um, we would spend like uh, two classes a week just watching a film. Uh, yeah, I think we watched um, The Blind Side or whatever. That, that, that um, film about the black football player. Oh, uh, I don't know. I, I think we watched. With Sandra Bullock from a few years ago. I haven't watched it, no. Um, I say a few years ago. It was probably before you two were born. That was <laughs> but um, one of the big things that we came across, uh, I loved I loved the book like because it, it presented all these really interesting philosophical problems and like moral dilemmas. And then it said, we are Catholics, so we believe. And um, like one of them was about the whole like... Um, if a man's about to poison the water supply um, of a whole village and he's going to kill a hundred people. And the only way to stop him is to shoot him because he's about to pour it in, right? And you're like a hundred meters away and you're going to kill him if you do that. So do you kill him and save the hundred people or do you not kill him and let him kill the other hundred people? And the thing my religion teacher said was that, well, we're... um, we're Catholics, so we believe that allowing harm is not the same as doing harm. And that just seems a bit, uh, you know, misplaced in a way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the Catholic religion has, like Christianity is really deontological. Like, um, it's very mm. rule-based. I don't think there's much room for, um, for, there ever has been much room for consequentialism in it. Like, the consequentialism being... The idea that consequences are more important than the act itself. Yeah. Well, there's there's several ways you can think about that, which is what everyone says to every question they find difficult. Um, I suppose I think the first thing is again this sort of idea that doing good for the greatest many by doing something which is in itself evil. I mean, you wonder to what extent that would be similar to martyrdom in a sense, surrendering yourself to an evil act. Is that the same as a kind of a martyrdom of the self, a killing of the self? Could it be construed as that? Because if so, maybe then there's a grounds for doing something that is immoral for some higher end. Oh, actually, but, yeah. Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't. I wouldn't swear by that, and I just came to me now. So, but it, it does seem. I mean, there's this Senator in the trolley problem that you know the sort of doing versus allowing harm. We had this issue. Uh, issue it was one of the um, subjects we had. Subjects we were teaching on last year, the year before in uh, our philosophy to our first years, which was this doing versus allowing harm document, um, in which one person drowns his young baby cousin in a bath, and another one walks in and doesn't stop the cousin from drowning. This is well, which is worse. And this is what we were asking first years. <laughs> it's like, I hated doing that sort of stuff. We had we had to answer that ourselves. We actually. Oh, did you? My apologies. Yeah, 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 we had. I thought that that had gone when Lizzie went. No, no, no. Um, Rachel Handley uh, taught us moral philosophy. She introduced us to that type of stuff. Yeah, it, it's grim. It's a grim example. Um, but there is, I mean, there, there is a considered distinction there between doing and allowing that some philosophers really hold to. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, if people hold to these opinions that strongly, then they're worth considering, at least, you know, critically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like... Um... Isn't that uh, part of one of the ways of looking at uh, arguments about the existence of God and like the way philosophy should approach that is that like uh, because so many people hold the belief so strongly that God exists, philosophy shouldn't bother trying to prove or disprove that philosophy should instead try to describe what that belief means. Yes. Kind of be like more descriptive as opposed to prescriptive. 
No? Yes, exactly. Again, that's that's the third model from our lectures. Mm. So um, again, it comes from it's not flu; it's Phillips or something. I don't know. God knows. But it comes from Wittgenstein ultimately. The um, the sort of idea that, that philosophy is just simply um, it's a tool among many to describe reality rather than to necessarily use language to to mess it up. But again, there's this massive debate in the last century about the role of language and how we, in a sense, you know, what we say about the universe and what that means about the universe. So there's a sort of growing trend where we say, well, look, philosophy's job isn't to to guide people in what they think about the universe, but simply to explain the universe in a sense that allows them to form their own judgments or something. Um, to be honest, it's not a philosophy that I know much about. Right. Well, moving on from that one then, on to our next question. And this is a question I don't understand, but I know Jared's an incredibly smart man, so I'm sure it's a great question, and that's why I'm asking it. Um, and Jared asked, how do you solve the theodicy? I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, yep. Don't you have to compromise in an absolute to avoid contradiction? Say that last part again. He's asked, he says, don't you have to compromise on an absolute to avoid contradiction? Oh, I don't know what that term means in that context. Um, I mean, the way around it, again, is the sort of idea that evil isn't a thing. Always it's a theodicy. lack of something. So, yeah, when we're talking about theodicy, we're talking about evil. All right. We're all not, right. So yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's more that, you know, like a, a donut needs a hole. Um, so there are necessary gaps. And these gaps are what evil is. And that, that's the sort of view I think the Catholic Church takes. And I imagine it's the view that many of the, the mainline Christian churches will take, or some form of it. Mm -hmm. um, that evil isn't a positive thing. It's not like you're making something. It's not like you're adding to the universe. It's just that you're just oh, yes, making it out of nothingness. The oddities could name what we were chatting about before. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, we've already solved it then. Great. <laughs> um, and I suppose to, we've got a few more questions. We've got a good few more questions there. We're not going to be able to get through them all. So I might just ask you... Um, where quick fire you, round. Where, <laughs> we actually could do a quick fire round after this, yeah. If we've got the time, I just wanted to ask, where do you think, like, what direction is religion going? Do you think there's a possibility for new, like, machine god religions to, you know, <laughs> the whole idea of uploading your consciousness to AI, that type of stuff? Oh, now that the, the issue of sort of the transhumanism and religion. Um, I know, I know, it's not quite on the topic, but there, I know there are a number of computer games. System Shock, I think, deals with this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. I was playing it for Christmas at Deus Ex. It, it does a great job. I think. Deus Ex: Human Revolution is a tremendous game. I played it for the first time during lockdown, um, mm -hmm. mainly because I liked all the character designs, but also because it was genuinely a good game. Mm -hmm. The idea of deifying the technological, or you know, is it's becoming one with. I wonder if it's just another way of expressing that general sense that people have of going into the afterlife or joining with the universe. It's just now we're putting in these sort of technologically appropriate terms like this is it joining the cloud. It means much the same thing, this sort of transcendence of the self into something else. Yeah. It's just now it's, in a sense, more in humanity's control because we're the ones building the server farms that people's souls will go into. Mm -hmm. um, the issue of... Transhumanism is going to become really, hopefully it will become really, really um, possible because the idea of, you know, purely robotic people or, you know, heavily roboticized people with, with you know, fully robotic limbs. I mean, that's going to be a challenge for certain religions who, who pride the existence of the body. I know, again, Catholicism is the one I know. So it's, in Catholicism, the body is vast, vastly important. It's not this sort of Cartesian mind-body opposition. So your body is just as important to you um, as your soul is, which is, of course, your form. And 
the idea that of lopping parts of that off and putting on robotic bits is going to be a contentious issue. Or adding things to your brain that can give you more memory. That's going to be what, what's going to happen there with philosophy of mind. And again, philosophy of soul, or the soul related to mind. It's a really massive set of issues, but it's all contingent on this technological process going in such a way that these questions become, in a sense, viable. Right now, they're, they're still just a little bit too abstract. They're still a little bit too 19, 1950s sci-fi yeah. conjecture. Um, granted, I don't want to wait until those things come out before we have to answer them. That's so a good like, yeah. mm -hmm. Are these questions answerable a priori? How do I think religion will deal with this? Well, if it's a good religion, or a great religion, it will stay true to what it believes. If it is not a good religion, um, it will either change, or it will hold too stubbornly to its beliefs. Is my answer, which isn't much of an answer. I think most properly reasonable religions are going to engage with these questions, and most others that aren't will dismiss them out of hand. Okay. And to engage does not mean to embrace, but it does mean to consider. Um, like, uh, it'd be interesting just to hear what you were talking about there. Um, when you're chatting about religions that hold the body as, you know, uh, so like on a level to you or similar to your, as important as the soul. Like, uh, coming from like, a, you know, a very like Christian uh, background and like all the religious kind of thought, you wouldn't necessarily assume that like people would take that uh, approach to define the body as like sacred and as part of your body as well, or part of your mind. Not way. Like, what what do certain religions have to say about that? Well, again, I can only really speak about um, those are the Catholic Christian ones, but I mean the, the stigma against things like tattoos and um, you know obsessive drinking or consuming of food or drugs. All of that has to do with respect for the body, but to an extent that respect for the body is because people think the body is just as valuable as the soul. I mean, for a lot of religions, and I think for most people, our existence is embodied. I mean, we see the world through our bodies. We perceive it. Whether we are just our bodies or there's something more, uh, and for certain religions, of course, the journey is something more. But because the body is this, this way which you interact, and sometimes the ways you interact with God, you consume the sacraments or you, you know, you're physically present during yeah. prayer, it's kind of important. It's it's not just a, a chocolate bar wrapper. It's something kind of vital. For other religions, that's not necessarily the case. It, it's just um, about transcending. I mean, certain Eastern faiths will have you, in a sense, transcend the self, which is to leave behind the mortal coil, which is to leave behind the mortal shell. That's, I mean, to, to sort of bring it back to Star Wars, Yoda says to, to Luke on Dagobah something like, Luminous beings are we, not this crude matter, which is to say, look, you're, you're more than your body. Your body is just this lump of disgusting flesh that you happen to carve around with you, and the real you is inside. Whereas I think most Christian religions say, no, the truth of you is the unity of these two things, which is why many Christians will say on the last day, Catholics and Christians will say on the last day, you're, you're giving your body back, so you better take care of it. Hmm. Yeah. Um... Oh, that's, that's interesting. That's a perspective I wouldn't really have thought of thinking about that. Um, so, quick fire out. Um, Sorry, my dog's barking. <laughs> no worries. Um, some of these questions are going to be really difficult to do any quick fire out. Wait, can I ask, uh, what's, the, what's the dog's name? Uh, famous from the lectures, of course. Actually, true, yeah. Can you introduce us a bit to the dog? Oh, he literally just came over. Hello, Ranger. 
He's an Alsatian, he just turned 10, and last month, no, actually it was last a few months ago, he scared the delivery driver who had more muscles than I've ever seen on a human being, so I'm very proud of him. <laughs> could you actually, um, could you show um, Ranger on a lecture sometime? Is that possible? We'd love to see. I'll see. I Maybe I'll, yeah, I probably will. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. I'll say he's black like the night and taller than me, so. <laughs> oh, I can't oh, wait to see him now. Um, See, so only I mean, look, it's that sort of Ron Swanson line. A dog has to be big enough to knock you over. Otherwise, it's not a dog; it's a cat. <laughs> I'm not sure that's how biology works, but sure, if you've got faith in it's it, it's how Ron Swanson works in Parks and Recreation. So it's it's okay. <laughs> that's all that matters. And um, we don't really have time for the yeah. quick fire round, unfortunately. Okay, well, I'll just say no to all the questions. <laughs> okay. Um, Unless I was supposed to say yes, in which case I'll say yes. <laughs> uh, I'm afraid I have to accept your first answer. That's a no to everything. Uh, so I think you... your grade hangs in the balance, Sonny. <laughs> um, we'll wrap it up there. Yeah, we'll wrap right. it up there. Um, well, thank you so much, Michael, for coming on. I hope you've all enjoyed listening to the chat. It, it's actually been great, Craig. It's lovely to be able to tackle something that, again, isn't you know chatting about the erasure of a culture. Yes. But um, yeah, thank you so much for coming on, Michael. Um, the feeling you. is mutual. <laughs> thank you all so much for listening we love you all and uh, we'll see you next week actually don't stop it yet next week um this isn't confirmed right this could like the date could sort of change but we might be interviewing uh, the coordinator of gaza action ireland and a palestinian artist about um activism in ireland and palestine and uh just to sort of like the methods of doing uh, it i suppose yeah so uh definitely uh, stick around uh for any news on that uh should be a brilliant episode it's gonna be a bit different to how we normally do it um yeah as you've noticed the last couple of weeks are definitely a bit of a change from the normal yes. format but um well that should be uh should be worth listening to anyway and i'll say thanks again to michael and uh, hello thanks to you for listening as well all right right bye, bye.